0: We've got a few episodes under our belt here at the Hi, I'm Bobby podcast. And guys, I got to tell you that it wasn't simpler to start a podcast than with Anchor. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. So let me explain. It's free. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast straight from your phone or your computer. Anchor will literally distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership, and it's everything you need to make a podcast all in one place. If this sounds amazing to you, download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. I am so excited, and I hope you guys will make a podcast today. and I'm your friend who knows just a little bit too much about pop culture. Welcome to your weekly meeting of Pop Culture Fanatics Anonymous. This week, we're having a chat about some movies from your childhood that Hollywood would probably never touch today. The Hunchback of Notre Dame and The Prince of Egypt. So, to begin, let's talk about The Hunchback of Notre Dame. Released in 1996, this is a film that I feel like is brought up quite a bit as like a, oh, I remember that movie and I remember it being very dark when I was a kid. And it still is, I promise you. It still holds up as being very dark. Um, I think in the grand scheme of the Disney Renaissance era of uh, movies, it's that one movie that's like, it's good do you need to revisit it again probably not but it's it's a doozy i think um so we're gonna we're gonna get into it uh but the the quick rundown of the story if you don't remember it's um it tries to be a faithful retelling of victor hugo's the hunchback of notre dame but um i don't know if it always is is quite on par so this is this is the story so the story follows the bell ringer quasimodo who is raised by his abusive judge, adoptive father, Claude Frollo. And by the way, the reason why Quasi is orphaned to begin with uh, is because Frollo killed his mother and also wanted to kill him too when he was a baby. Um, but Quasi grows up and he befriends Esmeralda, who is a vivacious street performer who is the first person to show him kindness or decency. It seems fine until it's revealed that Frollo wants to exterminate Esmeralda and all of her people from Pyrrhus, uh, mainly because Frollo has a big old crush on her. He's basically trying to reject the lust that he has for Esmeralda, and he sings a whole song about it, which is be at best. Uh, meanwhile, Esmeralda meets a soldier named Phoebus, and they fall in love, uh, much to the chagrin of Quasi. Frollo tries to burn Esmeralda at the stake, Quasi saved the day, all is well, kinda. Um, so, if in hearing the description of this film, uh, and you're you're wondering, this doesn't sound very Disney-esque. Uh, you will be correct; it doesn't. And that kind of leads into why one of the biggest issues with the film is its tone. It's definitely got some tone problems. Um, I would like to remind the class that the literal tagline of this movie mind you again this movie does have themes of genocide in it um the literal tagline for the movie is join the party so you know not great i don't know i don't really want to join that specific party i would say um but i think this kind of leads into the fact that disney just had this massive fear number one of the film not getting a g rating and So they had to kind of present it in a way that wouldn't be scary to kids, number one. And number two, probably wouldn't have a lot of the themes that the source material has, obviously. Um, Because if you don't know really the original novel uh, by by Victor Hugo, uh, everyone dies in the end. Literally, I don't think any of the characters survive. Um, And there's also some other like pretty egregious uh, themes that obviously Disney's rendition of the story doesn't touch on. But there was a really great New York Times article from this year because uh, I think the film turned 25 this year. And uh, that goes into uh, really great detail, just how like how the MPAA, which is the uh, board, essentially is supposed to be kind of like the moral compass of film. Um, how they decide, like the rating system, and for this specific movie, they originally wanted to give it a PG rating, um, but Disney, obviously wanting a G rating as all their other uh, films were, they, uh, the MPAA, basically gave some like, I would say pretty loose, uh, recommendations to bring the film back down to a G rating. So, for example, some of the filmmakers in the article retell. That uh, they thought that Hellfire as a song, and if you've heard it, it is—it's a doozy of a song for a kids movie. It's a great song, and we'll get into the music a little bit later. But it's a—it's a heavy song, and it's definitely—you don't have to read between the lines at all. Um, if you don't know, Hellfire is a song sung by Claude Frollo, and it is basically explaining that his lust for Esmeralda is just it's too much and he can't do it so he literally utters the one of the lines in the song is be mine or you will burn and there are, are moments in the film where he gives Esmeralda the opportunity to be with him and obviously she doesn't take the deal so because he knows and she knows that she would never be with him uh he wants to burn her at the stake so yes, again, kids' movie, G rating. So they thought that they thought that Hellfire would not uh, make it into the film, and it did. In Hellfire specifically, there is a uh, moment that the MPAA flagged as being too, uh, I guess, too like aggressive. Um, so in the song, they mentioned the word sin, and that was of word that the MPAA flagged as being a bit too much uh for a g rating so the way that they got around that was they still say the word sin but they kind of bring the volume down on it a little bit more and they have this big whooshing sound that kind of goes over it so it covers the word sin, even though they still say it there's another point in the film where frollo has like kind of i guess cornered esmeralda in the church in notre dame and he sniffs her hair yeah um <laughs> he sniffs her hair and the mpaa flagged that the sniff was too aggressive so they asked that they kind of like turn the volume down on it a little bit uh so the sniff still makes it into the film but the uh, actual sound of the sniffing is not is not so uh aggressive as they flagged so you can hear that this film kind of had a lot of things going on i would say that's the best way i can describe it and They, they being Disney, just really like, I think it really comes from the fact that up until that point, they were just releasing like banger after banger, hit after hit, starting with The Little Mermaid on up. And they were essentially invincible um, when it came to what they could cover. And so they kind of didn't have much reason to not think that they couldn't do a adaptation, uh, a children's adaptation of the Hunchback of Notre Dame. Um, and the weird thing about it is they didn't fully flat like fall flat on their face. The film's creators had to pull off a high wire act of showing a more colorful version of this very dark tale, um, without like fully rejecting the source material, right? And for the most part, like I said, it does it pretty well. They could have done a lot worse, um, but there are definitely moments where it feels like this was a story that didn't really need a kid-friendly adaptation. So Hellfire, a really great example of that. I think it's beautiful. The song is absolutely stunning on its own, but does it feel like it needs to be in a kid's movie? I don't think so, uh, personally, but it's in it and we all have to kind of deal with it. And I I do think that um, I've Recently in kind of prepping for this podcast episode, and I also did a TikTok video on it, I rewatched the film and I was kind of like shocked with the fact that they thought that this would be a good thing for like a film versus the stage. And the person I was watching it with flagged that too. And they were saying that it it was strange that in the boom of kind of Disney's theatrical run in the mid 90s, Uh, with like The Lion King and Beauty and the Beast. Um, It's strange that they chose to adapt The Hunchback of Notre Dame for an animated film versus for the stage, which is where I think it would probably fare a lot better um, as theater tends to be geared towards a more older audience. Even if it is Disney theatrical, they tend to borrow certain darker themes that maybe a child might not be Uh, as privy to or probably should be as privy to Uh, so that was just a a little thing about it like I think the film does what it needs to do given the circumstances Um, I can't remember who it was I think it was Kirk Wise who was one of the directors of the film uh, noted that it was it was a film with a lot of great potential Uh, it had great characters it had great music the story was good Um, so I think it was just a matter of like putting all those pieces together and seeing how it fits and it's more of like a hindsight is twenty twenty type of thing, and that's why I'm like, I chose to talk about it as a film that I don't think Hollywood would really touch again, um, especially for kids. They will probably do it for like an, an you know, an older adaptation or whatever it is. But as far as doing something like this for kids, I'm not I'm not quite sure. But that is to say, where the film kind of is a little bit, for lack of a better word, topsy turvy in tone the film really shines when it comes to the music and it's really no shock honestly. Composer Alan Menken and lyricist Stephen Schwartz uh, were able to perfectly punctuate certain themes and events in song that would not have translated well in dialogue. So Hellfire is a great example of that. Uh, I think the, the film's directors and screenwriters had an issue with wanting to bring up this theme of Frollo's lust for Esmeralda but obviously they couldn't say that outright, because that's not really accessible to a child, nor would it be necessarily appropriate, I don't think. So they kind of like left it to Alan Menken and Stephen Schwartz, and they came up with this song that was just this beautiful, sweeping epic of a song to explain this very complicated thing. And I think it it gets the point across. If nothing else, if you don't know the lyrics, you can hear that song and understand kind of the, the vibe that they are trying to, to give to you. But not only that, um, the film opens with this masterpiece of a, like, gothic song that has these, like, heavy, like, organs and church bells and, and everything in the bells of Notre Dame. And that is the song that leads us into the film and gives us a lot of the uh, background and backstory that we have for Quasimodo. Uh, basically explaining who he is, his relationship to Frollo and that is uh, it kind of sets up the whole film has this theme of the like who is the monster and who is the man and that is set up within this song. What they're trying to suggest is that the monster and the man we think Quasi is the monster and we may think Frollo is the man but it's really the other way around. The monster is Frollo and the man is, is Quasimodo. So the the songs help to kind of anchor the film a little bit more. So we have The Bells of Notre Dame. Then we get like really fun songs like Topsy Turvy that uh, I think is what the film kind of centered itself on as far as the marketing goes. One of the most beautiful, I think, Disney songs ever made and written and performed in God Help the Outcast. And then it just keeps going, like with Out There, which has gotten kind of a weird revival in the past couple of years, I would say, with its inclusion in uh, Walt well, Disney World's Nighttime Spectacular, I guess former Nighttime Spectacular, Happily Ever After. Um, I think a lot of people are rediscovering Out There as a song and really enjoying it. Of course, it's Alan Mencken, so he could truly do no wrong when it comes to, to music of Disney films, but he really kind of gives it this like dark underbelly of a score that just resonates and booms throughout the entire course of the film that is this movie saving grace is the music um it's still kind of heralded as like one of the best soundtracks especially of the renaissance era um just because of how good it is like beyond the story and beyond the film itself just take the songs as is and they're phenomenal this leads us into why this film doesn't necessarily i wouldn't say it doesn't work i think it's just it's a little bit more divisive than the film that we're going to talk about a little bit later in the prince of egypt um it's a really a matter of disney biting off a lot more than they can chew uh, in that moment and they kind of had to piecemeal it along the way and it ended up turning out fine i would say but it definitely just feels like disney was truly invincible at the time and they knew that and we knew that and we kind of were going to take what they had you know as is but in looking back on it as a film, I appreciate the film a lot more as an adult than I did as a kid. Uh, because I think as a kid it kind of scared me more than anything. Um, but now as an adult I think I can I can see the value in what they were trying to do. But it really is a matter of like we, we didn't necessarily need a kid friendly version of this very dark um, tale. But it worked out in the end as as best as it was going to be that's what it is so moving on to the prince of egypt the prince of egypt was released two years after the hunchback of notre dame in 1998 and it was dreamworks it was technically their first uh film, but if you know the kind of kerfuffle that happened with DreamWorks and Pixar as far as Ants and A Bug's Life goes, you'd know that they kind of pushed up uh, Ants so that it could uh, be released before A Bug's Life. And I think you can kind of see the effort that was put in into The Prince of Egypt versus Ants, which in theory probably would have been worked on around the same time, um, because this film is just the epitome of putting all that you can into an animated film in every single aspect. I don't think there's one element of this movie where there is not an extraneous amount of effort being put in, but it doesn't feel too forced. It just feels like a naturally good movie that still holds up nearly 25 years later. I think the most interesting thing about this movie is that when they were strategizing, they being DreamWorks, when they were strategizing how they were going to beat Disney with their first, you know, film out, they really specifically being Jeffrey Katzenberg said that we're going to beat Disney with three things, a star-studded cast, an immaculate soundtrack, and God. And I, I can't say that they didn't do that. I think, I think they accomplished that. Apparently it's been going around or not going around, but, um, Wanting to do a retelling of The Ten Commandments, like the movie The Ten Commandments, uh, for like in an animated format ha- was an idea that Jeffrey Katzenberg had had while he was at Disney and it really never got off the ground. And it wasn't until he co-founded DreamWorks with David Geffen and Steven Spielberg that the idea came back up and everyone was on board and they went with it. I think to have a religious story as your, fir- as your first first as the first film is tenacious, if anything. And I think that is a, a testament to um, who Jeffrey Katzenberg is just as like within the um, realm of animation and like in animation history, if you know anything about that man, he, he was willing to go for it and, and go for it. He did. And it kind of worked out, I would say. Like, I don't necessarily look back on the Prince of Egypt and cringe in the same way that I would with The Hunchback of Notre Dame. And I'll get into why a little bit later. Uh, like I said, the film was released in 1998 and is basically a retelling of The Ten Commandments. I uh, like the film, The Ten Commandments. And it centers around Moses, uh, who goes from being the prince of Egypt to leading the Jews out of Egypt. Uh, like many people, I think, even though there are some people that haven't, but I think the ma- vast majority of us who have seen this film saw it within some type of religious context. Um, so I went to uh, a Christian school for uh, a good part of my elementary school. And that was the first place that I saw the Prince of Egypt because they, they showed it to us as it was something that we were probably learning about um, in school because uh, it's a, a story that appears in the Bible. And I know that a lot of people across a couple of different faiths uh, have the same experience. Um, and I think a really interesting part of that is that in the production of the film, DreamWorks, uh, again, Jeffrey Katzenberg specifically, wanted to call in uh, kind of spiritual scholars across a couple of different faiths to make sure that the film was as accurate as they could be again with the parameters of an animated film intended for kids. Um and I think that aspect of it kind of makes it a little bit more not universal because I know that it is a story that is very kind of like centered within Judaism. But I think it kind of expands it as it's a story that a lot of people across a couple of different faiths are familiar with. An interesting little anecdote on top of the production of it. It was a, a behemoth of a an effort as far as getting this film off of the ground and getting it going. Um, not necessarily that they were hard pressed to find people to work on it, but it was just a massive effort in that it was a lot of people working on this film at one time. Um, I think there are like, I think it was like 350 plus animators across 34 countries working on this film at one time. And you can see that because the animation on it is still to this day spectacular. And I think it's an even stronger feat because it's 2D animated. It's not, uh, completely CG like a lot of current animation is now. I will say that it does kind of include CG, um, which would have been in its infancy in the time of the production of this film. Um, I think it includes it in a way that allows it to remain timeless. There aren't any just completely egregious CGI moments that I think a lot of 90s animated films that in that decided to include CGI uh, have where you look at it and you're like, oh, okay, that doesn't really look very good. But this film doesn't really have that going for it. Um, from top to bottom, it's a pretty phenomenally stunning film. I appreciate that they also allow the animation to tell, or I guess to assist in the storytelling along with the dialogue. So one really cool thing is that they, the animators purposely gave visual profiles to the different groups that live within the film. So to the Egyptians, they are much more angular and symmetrical. And also I made a video about this too, and someone in the comments pointed out that the Egyptians tend to have blue associated with them. And the Hebrews uh, tend to have a more natural and organic visual profile, and they tend to be associated more with red. So it kind of like shows that delineation, not just within the narrative and the dialogue and what you're hearing, they're also visually opposed as well, Um, which I think only adds, you know, to what the film was, was trying to accomplish. And I think it does it really well. Again, the music in this film continues to shine, just like it did in The Hunchback of Notre Dame, and it really is no surprise because Steven Schwartz worked on both of these movies. Steven Schwartz was the lyricist, and Hans Zimmer is the composer, and they just nailed the the music and the score and what we're supposed to feel. Like I've seen a lot of people who are saying, "I'm not even religious, but I listen to this soundtrack and I feel religious. I can feel." The feelings that I think are supposed to be like associated with religion, which I think is really interesting Um, because these aren't outrightly religious songs, right? But they just have that feeling of being a good balance between melodic and just like beautiful to listen to, but also just bombastic and grand and like, I think it really is like a, a, a great match made in heaven as far as Stephen Schwartz and Hans Zimmer coming together and making this soundtrack that is not really a religious soundtrack, but it kind of is. From Deliver Us to The Plagues to When You Believe, just the film top to bottom is very much similar to The Hunchback of Notre Dame in that the songs are able to communicate the narrative a little bit better than dialogue probably could. Um, I think in the case of The Prince of Egypt, it's less that the film is relying on the music as a crutch and more is adding on to what we're, wanting, we're supposed to be feeling based on what the narrative is. I don't know. I just There's not much more that can be said about this film. I think, like I said before, you can feel the effort and love and attention to detail and care that was put into this film. Um, and that's kind of why I think it's been able to stand the test of time that and just the fact i just want to talk about the 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 cast before we we move on the cast of this film from top to bottom is just full of stars and i think i forget sometimes just how star-studded the cast was so i'll read you a couple of people that were um that were in this film and i think it's it's interesting just in um Kind of where we are now with the recent announcement of the Mario film or the Mario movie. It's interesting that people are like beginning to talk about celebrities in animated films again and it's kind of rare when this film is brought up because I think every celebrity in the role is just does a phenomenal job in their role. Now this is to say I do want to flag that a lot of these people that they're playing, a lot of the characters are brown and black people And a lot of this cast are not brown and black. I'm just going to say. So that is one major slight that the film (laughs) has. And I think if it were to be done, redone for today, it probably would not, the cast wouldn't look the same. That is to say, so we have Val Kilmer as Moses, and he's also the uncredited voice of God. And I think the assumption, or I think what the film was trying to convey with having Moses, there's a scene where Moses sees God for the first time it's like the burning bush I think um and he sees God and he hears God so the fact that the voice of Moses Val Kilmer is also the voice of God it's supposed to be like God is within you God here your God is within your mind you're you're hearing him so god could sound like anyone because it's within you which i think is a really interesting kind of like story element that they were trying to convey so we have ralph fines michelle pfeiffer sandra bullock Jeff Goldblum, Danny Glover, Patrick Stewart, Helen Mirren, Steve Martin, and Martin Short. That's an ensemble cast if I've ever seen one. My goodness, the, the the cast is stacked. It's absolutely stacked. I think this film holds up a little bit more than The Hunchback of Notre Dame, only because it's a film and a story that a lot of people are really familiar with. And, a lot, and because I mentioned that a lot of people like saw this film when they were younger and was probably already within a religious context, I think the story is a lot more familiar to a lot more people. So it doesn't feel as weird or foreign as it may be learning about the Hunchback of Notre Dame for the first time when you're like five via an animated film, uh, that, and I think the source material, you know, the source material being, being a religious story, uh, you kind of have to use a, a little bit more of a gentle touch with it um, because it is so precious to so many people and I think they definitely did that again with like calling in spiritual scholars across a couple of different faiths um, they were able to kind of handle the story with a lot of care and I think that's why it's it's held up a little bit more um, than The Hunchback of Notre Dame but they're still in the same vein of like very serious kids films um, and I I think it it, it accomplishes what it was trying to do a little bit better than, than Hunchback did, but they're, they're about even keeled, I would say. So my clothing thoughts are that the nineties were just a crazy time for animation. Um, I wouldn't say that these were films that probably would be made again uh, now, I just don't think that anyone would necessarily want to touch it, um, only because it is, it was, I'm sure, incredibly difficult um, to write stories from such either heavy source material or source material that so many people are familiar with that you kind of really need to be careful with how you're choosing to tell a certain story. And I don't know. Like, it's, I I don't know if anyone would necessarily want to do that, especially for a kid audience. And I think it's interesting that both of these films ended up getting screen-to-stage adaptations. They both had, um, I don't know if they were officially Broadway, but they had uh, theatrical runs. Uh, Within the last, I would say, probably 10 to 15 years, um, that did a little bit better than their animated counterparts did because they spoke to an older audience, and I think these are stories that might fare better with an older audience because you can touch on those darker themes a little bit more. I will say with the Prince of Egypt and going back and watching it as a twenty plus year old woman i was I was shocked to see the things that i that they chose to um to show, including the the smiting of the firstborn I think is the name of the scene but it is when Ramsey's his firstborn is is killed then it literally I think the next scene after that is when you believe <laughs> so um it's <laughs> I can see why it might do a little bit better with an older audience especially on stage where you have a little bit more nuance there it definitely it's an interesting thing but I I I think it's very fascinating that both of these did get theatrical runs only because they're a little bit darker in nature. And I think they probably would have fared better with an initial theatrical run in the nineties. Maybe they would have been appreciated a little bit more, but I think they're appreciated now if nothing else for their music, both of these stories knew that music was going to be what, what carried them through the story, what carried the audience through the story. And they nailed that completely. Um, Again, the common tie between both of these films being uh, lyricist Stephen Schwartz, fantastic lyricist, um, and Alan Menken and Hans Zimmer are, you know, no slouches either when it comes to composing and creating the score. Thank you so, so much for listening to the ramblings of a 22-year-old's thoughts on these two 20-plus-year-old animated movies with uh, heavy religious backgrounds and context. (laughs) I hope you enjoyed it. And I just want to say, I hope that you didn't miss me too much last week. Last week was a little bit crazy for me, um, but we're back on the horse and uh we're gonna keep going every wednesday with a new episode if you want to know where else to find me on the internet you can find me at the afternoon special on tiktok or instagram or over on twitter at hi i'm bobby and you guys know at the end of each week's episode i would love to hear from you in the description of each and every episode you will have the option to send me a one minute audio message it could be a hot take It could be a response to what I said. It could be a question. It's really up to you. All I ask, of course, is that you keep it respectful. And if an audio message is really not your thing, you can just shoot me a DM over on Instagram or on Twitter. My DMs are open. We can chat and I will include your thoughts in the next week's episode. I hope you enjoyed this week's chat and that you'll join me next week for another pop culture deep dive. Later days, friends. Whether you're in a relationship, single, or recently heartbroken, you could be navigating some tough stuff. And it really can be challenging to do this on your own. We all need help when it comes to our relationships, very specifically our love lives. I'm Jillian, and each week on my podcast, Jillian on Love, I share skills on how to strengthen our relationships How to build a stronger sense of self, and how to heal heartbreak and choose better partners. Learn how to start making change today, and search for Julian on Love wherever you're listening now. Welcome to a journey into the heart of the Texas Renaissance Festival, the nation's largest and rowdiest celebration of medieval fantasy. But what lurks beneath the facade of tights and turkey legs?